Today our text is Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 3. If I could ask you all to stand for the reading of God's word. We do this as a a sign of, of respect because God is speaking to us here today. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is our reading so far of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your presence here today. I ask that you would give life to the words preached. Would you open our hearts to hear from you and to be administered uh, to by your spirit? I pray for each and every person here, Lord, that you would meet with them. Lord, won't you strengthen your saints? Won't you save the lost? And won't you cause glory to be brought to your precious name? Amen. Good morning, family. I greet you in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus Christ. I would like to extend a very warm welcome to uh, each and every one of you here in this house of God today, where we gather as a family, as the people of God, to worship and to fellowship with one another. If you're visiting, we welcome you in particular and uh, invite you to join us for, for tea and coffee after the service. I've uh, titled today's sermon, The Preeminence of God's Son. That's a big word. It means supremacy or aboveness. But there's another way of saying this. Beloved, there is nobody like Jesus. This passage from Hebrews rings this glorious gospel bell right throughout. Uh, Last week, Alan challenged us to read the scriptures, and to apply it to our lives, uh, to, to grow in Christ-likeness. And it's my prayer today that the person and work of Jesus Christ will be made so clear to each of you that you would leave saying, there is nobody like Jesus. Mankind has many, many problems. Poverty, hunger, drought, cruelty, disease, corruption, crime, lying and greedy politicians, natural disasters, and the list goes on and on. But there is one problem for mankind that towers above the rest, making them meaningless in scale. This problem is God's holiness. God's holiness is a problem for mankind because mankind is sinful and holiness requires the punishment of sin. Now, this sin is not merely corporate and collective. It is individual. Each one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that sin is death. We all have a big problem. But that same verse 
goes on to say that the free gift of God, the free gift of God, the gift that you do not pay for, is the righteousness of Christ. We need a word from God. We need a word from God because the principal devastation of sin is that we were cut off from communion with God. As isolated sinners, we need revelation. We need a communication from God about how we can be in communion with Him again. And today, we have the great news of this very revelation. Now at this point, it's, it's likely that you've had one of two reactions. One, you've said, how do I get this free gift from God? And if that was your reaction, you're asking for this word, which we're going to explore today. I'm sure that this text will give you a very clear answer. Or two, you've said, don't you judge me. If that was your reaction, I can assure you, you are not alone. That is the natural inclination of how every heart wants to respond to this message, apart from God. But if I could, I'd like to humbly ask you two questions. The, the first is, if there were indeed a God, would we not expect him to make radical and surprising demands on those whom he has created? And secondly, I'd like to humbly ask you, would, would you consider joining me today as we explore this text, open to the possibility that today may in fact be the day that you hear from God? I believe that today's text is likely the best text in the New Testament to demonstrate the surpassing excellence of Jesus Christ. We will be drilling down into this text to explore what is commonly called Christ's threefold office, meaning that he is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. The book of Hebrews expands and explores each of these in, in, in great depth, uh, but in these opening three verses, we have a tour de force of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And it is, for me, a wonderful privilege to expound these uh, with you today. I'd like to begin by just briefly defining these terms. A prophet is one who represents God to the people. Um, and a, uh, he, he brings and announces the blessings on obedience and the wrath on disobedience with the redemptive purpose of people following God and returning to him should they wander away. A priest is one who represents the people to God, pleading before him not to draw the sword against our sin. And a king is one who rules all things in his dominion according to the laws he has given which the people are subject to. With this in mind, let's turn to our text. So in the first verse, I think there appear to be three things to note here. One, God spoke to the fathers. Two, he did so by the prophets. And three, he did so long ago at many times and in many ways. All right, so... The term fathers in God spoke to the fathers is a collective term. We can just read that as God spoke to his people. And uh, 
the thing that should strike us here is that God speaks. Did you hear me? God speaks. He is not self-concealing. He is self-revealing. He is graciously condescending to us. That, we have a negative ter- sense of that word in, in English. It means to come down from a high place. Neither of us is higher than the other, but God is higher than us. So God's condescension is gracious. It's not patronizing. It's a great mercy. We are in desperate need of a word from God. And being rich in mercy and kindness, he has graciously given us a word. Many words, in fact, to his people throughout the ages. There is a God who speaks so that we can know him and love him and obey him. He spoke to us by the prophets. Now, a prophet quite simply delivers God's word to God's people. The word prophet is used completely incorrectly outside of its biblical context. And even many genuine churches mistakenly misunderstand what a prophet is. A prophet is a messenger from God. He is a glorified and, as we all know, very often misunderstood postman. But there is no predicting involved. There is no magic. The ways in which he takes delivery of that message from God can, let's be honest, be relatively mysterious. Uh, Burning bushes, dreams, and pillars of cloud come to mind. But the, the reality is that a prophet simply brings the word of God to the people. And God, in his wisdom, elected to whisper, speak into the ear of prophets, and, and so that he could communicate to the rest of man through man. He speaks into the ears of some men so that he can speak by them into the hearts of all his people. This is no closed circle. God reaches everyone with his word. Also, God spoke to us long ago at many times and in many ways. It's to highlight to us the expanse of the context of his communication God has been speaking frequently, and he's been speaking for a long time. In the ESV translation uh, of our text, the phrase for the variety of God's communication to us is many ways. The King James Version translates this as diverse. The New King James uh, translates this as various. The point here is to give us the idea that there were many various different kinds of ways in which God communicated. This is such a comfort to me. God is not constrained, limited to a means of communication. Perhaps you don't see his revelation so clearly in numbers, but you do in the Psalms, and they bring you to your knees. Maybe I don't see his revelation so clearly in Nehemiah, but the story of David and Goliath, of Jesus defeating sin, because I couldn't, that rings the gospel bell in my heart. But, verse 2, immediately we should sense the signaling of a change. And previously God has spoken to his people by the prophets. But now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. To put this another way, um, I think what is helpful to note here is... Um, the. Uh, Spoken to us by some. Uh, we are told that this communication is now greater, greater than what came before. And 
how, what about this text tells us that? How, how, do, we, how do we know that, the, that uh, the way God has communicated with us now is greater? Uh, I think there are three ways. The first is, Jesus is God's son, and Jesus is God. That is the first one. That is far greater. Uh, two, he is appointed the heir of all things. That is far greater. This prophet owns everything. All the prophets in history owned. Uh, three, uh, Jesus is God's final and greatest word to us. There is no need for another word. That is how much greater this word is. The first one, Jesus is God's son. Before the uh, coming of God's son, God spoke through the prophets. But now he speaks to us through the coming of his son. As a side note, the word his, the article his, isn't there in Greek. So we could translate this literally as he spoke to us by sonness. So what's being highlighted here is not only the person of Christ, but the quality of being a son is far greater than the quality of being only a prophet. So God speaks to us in these days through his sonness of his son. Uh, he is far more than a prophet. He doesn't merely bring God's word to God's people, although he does, but he is God's word to God's people. The prophets brought the word. God, coming in Christ, veiled in human flesh, was the word, is the word. Uh, the second claim is that this person, God's son, is God. There is a claim to deity made here, and it's made by the connection of God's son to the creation of the world. The word world here is actually better translated as worlds. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you'll see that it has plural worlds. Uh, the, the Greek word here um, for the physical world, sorry, the Greek word normally for physical worlds is cosmos. But the word here is aeon, which means ages. So the principle here isn't that God just created the material world. Of course he did. But he created he created and, and conceived and breathed the concepts that underlie this. He conceived uh, the very ideas in which physical things exist. Space, time, energy, matter, and force. This is strange to us because we tend to think of the physical things as being foundational reality. But the truth is, God made it all. And many of you here may have had John 1.3 already come to mind. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's another claim to deity. But he made everything. The point then is that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus, who is God. And that's why John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is God incarnate in human flesh. Secondly, he is appointed the heir of all things. This is really important. It means he can deliver on the promises that he makes. It's like having infinite surety. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he can say it. 
Because he is the way, he has the truth, and he has the life. Um, If he says he can forgive your sins, it's because he is the righteous God who can impute his righteousness to you on the basis of his grace. His righteousness is his to give, and so your sins are his to forgive. If he says he can give you peace, it's because he is the Prince of Peace. If he says he can give you joy, it's because he's the self-existing fountain of joy. It's his to give. Ultimately, all things are his to be used for his will, including sickness, including disease, including Satan on a leash. All of these things are at his disposal. And if he says he will make a new heavens and a new earth, that he will wipe this one out and create a new one, he can do it because it's his planet. He can collapse the galaxies and speak a new one. Because the words, the creative power, the speech is his as well and at his disposal, for he is the word. So why is he, why is he uh, the, the heir of all things? I think there are three reasons. First, sons are heirs. They have a right to what comes from their father. Secondly, he has a right to what he created. There is a gigantic TM on the entire galaxy. It all belongs to God. It's his trademark. He owns it. And thirdly, he is appointed by God by virtue of his obedience to the Father in his earthly ministry, that he came, that he was born, that he lived a perfect life in your, pl- in your place. And despite the horrific nature of what was about to come, he endured the cross in obedience to the Father and because of the joy that was set before him. And thirdly, Jesus is God's final and greatest word to us. There will never be a greater word than the Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises have their yes and their amen in him. This is what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. All the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen unto the glory of God. He is the full revelation of the glory of God. There is no greater revelation to be made to man than the Lord Jesus Christ. This victory has been won. This way of salvation has been made clear. The end has been made known from the beginning. And the word of God to us in Christ will never be displaced, replaced, improved upon, or taken away. Jesus is the superior, the perfect, and the final word of God to us. This is why Jesus said, Moses said to you, but I say to you. He fulfilled the whole law and all of the prophets. Beloved, there is nobody like Jesus. Nobody like Jesus. Uh, I think you might find something else uh, interesting here. All the false gods and idols in the Old Testament, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they were continually mocked throughout the Old Testament because they were stationary and mute. They couldn't speak. Let, let me ask you a question. 
if this God, the God of the Bible, is not your God, has your God spoken to you? Is he self-revealing? Is his glory visible and manifest in his word to you? Listen, this is why God said in the Old Testament, all the gods of the, of the peoples of the nations are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Isn't that wonderful? Look, if we had a very long time, we could dig up the surface of the entire planet, every square inch of dirt, and we would find each and every one of the prophets. We would find the true ones, the false ones, all lying there in their tomb. Muhammad will be there. Mary will be there. But Jesus Christ will not. Because he is risen. I ask this question because everybody listens to some kind of prophet. Uh, for, for some, it's a CNN economist. For some, it's Hugh Bladen. For some... It's horoscopes. For some, it's witch doctors. For some, it's astrologers. For somebody else, it's ancestors. For somebody else, it's the dead. For somebody else, it's a famous textbook. And for somebody else, it might even be themselves. (laughs) And the Weather Channel. But the Word of God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Should we consult the dead? Should not a people consult their true and living God? We all need a word from God. It's just that most of us look for it in the wrong place. But verse 3 brings us even more wonderful news. Not only can we hear from God in Jesus Christ, but we can see God in Jesus Christ. He is how we experience God's glory The word for radiance here, your translation might say brightness, is apogosma. It it means to send forth the light of brightness, to issue forth light. The statement here is that Jesus is the light of God shining forth to us. And often used, this is quite a complex picture, so an an often used uh, analogy here uh, to clarify this is the the sun. Uh, Think of it like this. We experience the sun by light and heat. They are inseparable from the sun. They have always come from the sun. And the sun has also never existed without them. The brightness of the sun cannot be separated from the sun, but it is also distinct. In the same way, Jesus is not a reflection of God's glory. He radiates his own essential glory. They're of the same nature, but different. He is both God and the manifestation of God to us in the flesh. God spoke to our fathers in the prophets, but now he shouts to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why John 1.14 says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Verse 3 also tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. The Greek word here is character, which is surprisingly where we get the word character from uh, in English. A very difficult translation. It's it's used in Greek to give the sense of a stamp, 
a molding die or a seal. In other words, it is a replication or picture of the original. Read it like this. Christ is the image of God. He is the nature and the character of God revealed to us. The word translated um, in engraved form uh, in the Geneva Bible and very stamp in the RSV are probably better pictures of this, but um, the exact imprint does make the similar point. What we need to see here is that we can see God's nature revealed to us perfectly in Jesus Christ. Beauty, justice, peace, joy, kindness, wrath, judgment, patience, tenderness, power, wisdom, and authority, all wrapped up in one perfect Savior. Uh, He said to himself, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Wow. And Colossians 1.15 says, he is the visible image of of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, then you must see what Christ is like. There is no other way for you to know what God is like. In this last scripture, the word image is, um, uh, from the uh, Colossians 1.15 there, the word image is icon, which is an exact copy, a precise image. But nevertheless, let's be clear, our language falls far short of truly being able to capture the full reality of, of Christ being the, the character, the full revelation of God. Uh, analogies can never really fully capture this. But I, I hope the analysis of the languages is somewhat helpful. And perhaps we can wrap this up, uh, this, this portion here, in, in one last powerful communication that comes to us in Colossians 2.9. It says, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily but we also read in verse 3 that he upholds the universe by the word of his power isn't this incredible while he was laying there in a manger his name was upholding the universe his name upholds the universe but he had to go to school to learn how to spell it This, beloved, is his influence. This, beloved, is power. This, beloved, is the might of Jesus Christ. Not one atom in the universe exists outside of his sovereign will. You'll note that the word here is upholds. It's a present participle in Greek. It means continually uh, it is, uh, conveys the meaning of present and continuing action. He has been, is being, and will be being, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Right now, do you know if a single constant in physics in the universe was off by the slightest degree, the consequences would be catastrophic. If the constant of gravity was off by a thousandth of a percent, the universe would would collapse on itself. If the sun were the slightest bit further or the slightest bit closer away, we would either burn to death or freeze to death. Did you know that if the oceans were a hundredth of a percent deeper, it would swallow up so much of the 
of the oxygen and the, and the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that life could not exist on the surface of the planet. Who's doing this? Who keeps it all working? The sun. How? By the word of his power. Beloved, there is nobody like Jesus. The, the next part of this uh, verse deals with Christ's atoning work for our sin. The fact that God's word to us in his son principally concerns salvation indicates what I said earlier, that man's greatest and current need is to be right with God. You might think that that pornography is free, but it will cost you more than you can ever pay. You might not think that you will get caught, but that adultery does not escape the gaze of a holy God whose eyes search to and fro throughout the surface of the earth. We need a savior. But the good news, the good news is that Jesus has made propitiation, atonement, for your sins. Do you know that no other religion has a substitutionary atonement? No other religion has an innocent and perfect holy substitute dying in place of the guilty, much less God himself veiled in human flesh, making purification for the sins of a Wicked people who despise God. Only the Christian gospel can claim to know anything of grace. Anything. And only God could have devised such a salvation. This could never be the work of man. It is only the basis of Christ's atoning work. And his priestly ministry. By which God could ever love us without compromising his holiness. Without Christ... To love us, God would have to abandon righteousness and, ju and, and justice. But again, the good news is that through Jesus, God saves sinners from God. For a second observation, I'm going to use the NASB and the King James uh, Version translation. Uh, because the, the ESV leaves out the phrase, by himself. Which I believe to be an important point here. He, by himself, made purification for sins. The person of Christ, on his own, made this sacrifice. God entered humanity, veiled in human flesh, to overcome the power of sin and death. Do you know what is amazing? He did this by himself. That is how powerful he is. It is the greatest work he accomplished. It is the greatest work ever accomplished, far greater than creation. And it is also far greater than upholding the universe by the word of his power. And one of my favorite scriptures, Psalm 103, verse 12, you'd, you'd do well to mark this down and to meditate on this. As far as the east is from the west, has he removed our transgressions from us. And oh boy, did I need my transgressions to be moved as far from me as the east is from the west. Now, this perfect Savior entered the world in the likeness 
of sinful flesh and for sin. And he died the death of those who will come to salvation. The brightness of God, the radiance of glory, was swallowed up for a moment by darkness. The light of the world was briefly extinguished. But this was not the end. Three days later, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again, the Son of God, in power. And as a result, there are no more priests, no other mediators. They were a shadow of things to come. There is no such thing as a priest or a pope under the authority of God anymore. They are all false mediators in a false system, performing a false ministry. Alan is an amazing pastor, a gifted and called man of God, but he isn't a priest either. He is a shepherd. He watches over the flock and he leads us to the one true mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who interposes his precious blood on our behalf. Beloved, there is nobody like Jesus. And then, after appearing to many and proclaiming the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty on high is God. He sat down because it was finished. It is intended to convey a sense of completion, of finishedness. He sat down because it is a place of rest. He sat down because it is a place of ruling. And 1 Peter 3.22 says that God lifted him to his right hand and made angels and authorities and powers subject unto him. John Piper makes a particularly astute observation here about how to read this verse with reference to the concept of his seatedness. Actually, this, this whole text, with reference to his seatedness, can be read like this. He, being the radiance of God's glory, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, being the exact imprint of God's nature, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, upholding all things by the word of his power, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he, having made purification of sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There are two main reasons then that he sat down. The first is that he is the king. It is his throne. He is the conquering king, reigning in victory with the right to rule. Uh, can I make an observation here? You really need Jesus to be your king. You might think that you can sit on the throne of your own life, but don't be deceived. Each one of us is being and will be ruled. Satan, our adversary, in all his wiles, would have you believe that you can sit 
on the throne of your own life. But you will not be occupying that chair. He will. You are not the slightest match for the devil. He will hand you the scepter of wealth. And he will hand you the crown of fame and of earthly pleasures. But these are distractions to keep you from recognizing that you are hurtling at 200 kilometers an hour towards the solid rock of God's righteousness. And if you hit it, you will find yourself smashed to pieces, shipwrecked in hell for all eternity. But if Jesus sits on the throne of your life, the question to you is, who do you suppose can dethrone him? The devil? The devil is nothing. The devil is created. The devil is a beast on the leash doing the precise bidding of God at every moment of his existence. His power is laughable. So, be ruled by God. Have Christ sit on the throne of your life. He is the, the only king for whom the good of his people can be reconciled with the glory of his name. It is good for you and it is good for God to rule your life. And God, having received you, having adopted you, having brought you into his family, having created you, having loved you and ruling you as your king, he will never let you go and no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck you from his hand. And now, for the second reason. Can, can I tell you something else amazing? In the temples, there were no seats. Search the scriptures. The exact specifications for how to build a temple were all given, and there was nothing about seats. Scour the face of the earth, dig up the ruins, and you will find no seats. Do you know why? The work of the priest was never done. So he could never sit. He, he had never had the ability to perform a finished work. He, made, he must continually offer sacrifices. And Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us why. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices were temporary. They were a foreshadow that looked to Christ and relied on his sacrifice to make these sacrifices acceptable to God. Hebrews 10:12 says, "But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God." And Hebrews 7:27 says, "He has no need, like those high priests of old, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people." Because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Isn't this staggering? He sat down because it was over. There was nothing more to do. This is why we call Christ's work the finished work of the cross. Beloved, there is nobody like Jesus. In conclusion... A friend of mine recently said to me, if your God is real, why doesn't he come down and show himself to us? (laughs) 
I responded with this. He did. He sent his very own son. And you know what? The Jews, his people, the ones who were expecting him, the ones who had the, the Torah, the Old Testament, who knew how to verify who he was, how to look for him and what he would be like. They were the ones who rejected him, despised him, called him possessed, a liar, a drunkard, and a blasphemer. They held a mock trial for him. They beat him nearly to death with whips. And then they took him on top of a hill and crucified him outside of Jerusalem. They killed the very word they were supposed to know was coming. So the problem has never been God's visibility. It is the wickedness of our own hearts that prevents us from seeing and hearing from God. Yes. So, to you here, <laughs> sitting here today, I have, a, I have a plea for you. If you have seen something of Jesus Christ brought to you in His Word today, do not leave here uplifted by an encouraging sermon, yet bound for hell. Leave here bound for heaven, trusting in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And to end, there is nobody like Jesus. His judgments are inscrutable. His transcendence is infinite. His grace is irresistible. His majesty is indescribable. His counsel is in the heavens. His forgiveness crushes shame. His power is matchless. His mercies on you every morning. His beauty is beyond comprehension. His faithfulness is proven. His knowledge is perfect. His word is true. His speech regenerates hearts. His speech creates. His wing gives comfort and shade. His hand is mighty. His arm is outstretched. And his glory is displayed in the theater of creation. He is sovereign over all things. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He does all that he pleases. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is an all-consuming fire. He is holy. He gave the law and he fulfilled it too. He demands righteousness and he provides it. He is in the heavens and he is in this room. He is the bridegroom. He is the seeker of man. He shouldered every sin. He shouldered the weight of every curse. He has grace on his lips and a sword on his thigh. He defeated the Goliath of sin. He is the author and the perfecter of faith. He is the last Adam. He is the first of many sons. He was nailed to a tree. He died. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, the Son of God in power. He defeated death. He ascended into heaven. He sits upon the throne. He ever lives to intercede for us. And one day he will return. Come on, Lord. Come quickly. Beloved, there is nobody like Jesus. Jesus.